Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So you remember back in the episode where we asked, will we ever live without sleep? We talked about how sleep appears to be this really critical component of our brain's memory consolidation, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, I started thinking about some of those rat brain monitoring studies again, because I was reading about these two neuroscientists at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center in North Carolina. Their names are Sam Deadweiler and Robert Hampson, and they've been studying rat brains for a few decades now. But one of their studies on what's going on in these tiny rat noggins suggests some fascinating implications for the future of adding technology to the human brain. How's that? Well, all right. So let me set this up here. So in a study, they got two sets of rats that are trained to run between two areas of their cage. And on one side of the cage, they learn to press these levers at a certain sequence, and that helps them get a reward. However, over time, one set of these is trained to wait for up to 30 seconds before they could press the appropriate lever to get their reward. Now, the second set didn't have to wait. But when the second set was forced to experience a delay of their own, they were completely thrown off and they (laughs) forgot which lever they needed to push. So here's where the crazy part comes in. The brain activity in the first set of rats, you know, these are the ones that had to learn to wait. They had been recorded, you know, once they'd learned the lever to push And then using electrodes, Deadweiler and Hampson stimulated this same series of brain activity for the second set of rats. And this time they began behaving as though they'd been trained like the first set of rats and began choosing the right lever, despite the fact that they had not actually been trained to do this. That's insane. Yeah, it's as though they had memories implanted of things they had not actually experienced. And this got me thinking, you know, as this evolves, what will it mean for humans? And how are scientists currently using machines in the human brain? And what are our brains capable of when computers are built in? These are just a few of the questions we'll be asking in today's episode. So let's get started.
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, eating but apparently not sharing a big old bag of Smarties is our friend and producer, <laughs> Tristan McNeil. And that seems fitting, because in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the incredible advances in understanding the human brain, as well as hacking the brain with technology so that we can treat diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, as well as those who've been affected by stroke, but also just to see how much more the brain is capable of if given some additional firepower. Yeah, I'm sure this is just the first of a ton of episodes we'll do on the brain, but there's just something so fascinating about the research happening right now, and so many things that once seemed like science fiction that are now possible. So that's what we decided to focus on. Yeah, and I'm so excited to have a real superstar in this field on with us in a bit. His name is John Krakauer, and he's a neuroscientist and neurologist at Johns Hopkins. And he's also the director of the Brain Learning Animation and Movement Laboratory, also known as BLAM. BLAM. <laughs> it's the best acronym in the business. I agree. And uh, obviously, he's so interesting. I, I can't wait to get him on the line. But before we do, we need to back up just a little and, and talk about how we got where we are in terms of the technology being added to our neural systems. I, I mean, not ours specifically, but in humans in general. Right, right. Well, you know, it's crazy to realize that 2017 marks 60 years since the first human trials for cochlear implants. Hmm. Now, these implants were designed with electrodes positioned in the inner ear to transmit sound to the brain. And then in 1964, after those trials, the first cochlear implant was tested in a human volunteer. Now, this was a huge step in helping us to see that electronic devices could be built to take sensory information, you know, such as sound, to translate it into a language that the brain could then process. So I, I really had no idea it had been that long. And, and of course, today there are much more sophisticated cochlear implants helping tens of thousands of new patients every year. Yeah, we should probably quickly note that there are two general types of neural implants. First, you have input devices. You know, like we described with cochlear implants, these are mm -hmm. the kind that take sensory information from the outside world and pass that along to our nervous system via electrical signals. Then you have retinal implants, which are also pretty amazing, and they're another form of input device. And then you'll also find devices that are used to help control seizures, you know, from epilepsy or maybe tremors caused by Parkinson's. Again, signals brought in from the outside world. Sure. And, and the progress they're making on treating things like Parkinson's through deep brain stimulation implants is incredible. So I, I didn't realize that there have now been over 100,000 people treated with these. Huh. And for our listeners, when Will and I were at Mental Floss, we actually teamed up with National Geographic to help demystify brain surgery. We did the show called uh, Brain Surgery Live, where we followed the story of this wonderful man who'd been suffering from Parkinson's tremors for over a decade. And we got to see how when surgeons inserted electrodes into the patient's basal ganglia, which is this area of the brain that's most affected by Parkinson's, and then when they stimulated those electrodes with a battery, the patient's tremors stopped completely. Like, it, it was one of the most miraculous things I've ever seen. This gentleman who couldn't easily hold a piece of paper because he was shaking so much suddenly had these tremors turn off. And he had so much dexterity. Like, he sent a message to his family from the operating room on an iPad and it was just incredible. Yeah, it definitely was. All right, so, so those are all examples of input devices. So now let's talk about output devices, which have come along more recently. And, you know, these are the devices that take information in the opposite direction. They read and record brain activity and then translate that into signals for some outside use. You know, say controlling a prosthetic arm, for example. And I know this is much more recent, but we're still talking a couple of decades, right? 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 1996, which is the year most people associate with the release of Mariah Carey and Boys to Men's One Sweet Day. I mean, <laughs> you remember what a huge year that was because of that. Yeah. But, you know, it was also the year that researchers first implanted electrodes into the brain of a monkey and then helped it use a prosthetic arm. And as we mentioned earlier, back in our Will We Ever Live Without Sleep episode, we talked about how we've gotten so much better at observing brain patterns and can actually see the same areas of the brain light up as we run through those memories again during sleep. And, and that helps us consolidate those memories. Sure. Well, in the similar kind of observation, when they place electrodes on the motor cortex of these monkeys, they can then observe spikes in the activity of certain neurons. And as they observe these over the course of several studies, they began to figure out what patterns of spikes corresponded with certain arm motions. And over time, the researchers figured out how to teach the monkeys to control a robotic arm, you know, just using their brain signals. And of course, the next step was then to figure out how to do this, you know, for people. Yeah. So I actually read a good bit about this, especially as it related to helping those dealing with paralysis. And I, I think the first person to use a brain implant to both use certain functions on a computer screen and to gain some functionality from a prosthetic hand was this guy named Matthew Nagel back in 2004. So he was paralyzed from the neck down. So this was a big step. And though with the brain being such a complicated organ, there's clearly a long way to go. So researchers are still working on ways to improve this technology. And as of now, patients still have to be connected to a computer for it to work. But it's still pretty remarkable what's happened in the efforts to help those fighting paralysis. Yeah, we were talking about some of these yesterday, and I actually think it would be helpful if you would just walk us through some of the most recent progress in this area. Sure. Well, several things have happened in the past year or two. Uh, on the communications front, we've placed electrodes inside the brain of a woman with ALS, allowing her to communicate simply by using her thoughts. Basically, she uses an eye tracker to spell words on a screen. But at some point, like many people with ALS, she may lose that ability as well. So she's participating in this other study where they've implanted an electrode system over the region of the brain that affects hand movement. And after a bit of training, just by imagining moving her hand, she was actually able to make selections on a screen. And she's apparently gotten this down to 95% accuracy. Which is just unbelievable. I, I just have a hard time wrapping my head around how this is even possible. Yeah, it really is amazing. So in, in recent years, we've also seen some major leaps in terms of motion and touch. So last year, uh, this partially paralyzed man was able to pour liquid from a bottle. And even more impressively, he was able to play Guitar Hero. All right. <laughs> yeah, because they had this uh, electrode sleeve that was connected to the motor cortex in his brain. And... In another study, scientists helped this quadriplegic man feel as though he was touching certain objects through a robotic arm. Like, he could actually feel the objects all by tapping into his somatosensory cortex. I mean, I can only imagine how strange and, and I'm guessing, overwhelming that was to regain this sense of touch. Definitely. It, it all just seems so unreal. And there's also this electrode cap that's actually helped some paralyzed people begin walking again. It's a little different than the others because the cap is connected to this exoskeleton, which is on the person's legs. And as signals get sent from the cap to the exoskeleton, it allows the legs to move, which is awesome. But there have actually been some cases of paralyzed people learning to walk without the exoskeleton in recent years. Like the cap sends signals to electrodes implanted into the person's own legs. That's so cool. All, mm -hmm. right. All right. So we've talked about input devices and output devices. And you might be wondering what the next step in the evolution is. And it's something called bidirectional interfaces. And, and these combine the input and the output. And they could be huge in helping those deal with damaged nervous systems. How so? Well, let's say somebody had a stroke. And as a result of that, there are parts of their nervous system that are not really communicating or appropriately connected anymore. 
And so through the use of a bidirectional implant, you might be able to reestablish this connection and give them the ability to use a body part that had effectively been paralyzed due to the stroke. But what's even more fascinating is that there's a developing area that's still very, very early days. So what's that? Well, it involves playing with memories. And apparently we might be able to restore memories by using an implant to replace the input and output flow from the hippocampus. And and this is the area of the brain that's responsible for memory formation. Well, let's talk a little bit more about memory and some of that research you mentioned at the very top of the show. I, I mean, the idea that scientists could basically transplant the memories of a bunch of rats into a single rat's brain and then watch it behave as though it had learned certain things through experience even though it hadn't? I mean, that's just so crazy to me and also just so hard to believe. <laughs> and and that's pretty much what Deadweiler said about the science community's response to his findings at first. I mean, he said, no one's going to believe this until I do 100 control experiments. But play this out for me a little. Like, what does all of this mean for people? Well, there's obviously a long way to go to apply this to the same type of neural implant in humans. But You know, the thinking is that something like this could play a very real role in helping somebody with Alzheimer's or someone who had a stroke, you know, get some of their brain function back. I mean, the problem of memory loss is that it often results in damage in the brain that prevents the flow of information between two locations. And so if you could essentially create a way to bypass the damaged areas, you might be able to create both new memories and hopefully regain the ability to access old ones. Which is a fascinating idea, though. Obviously, memory is this super complicated thing, right? I I mean, while the hippocampus is where long-term memories are formed, you still have to consider all these other areas of the brain that are working together. And that's true. So it's, it's a very difficult task. But there are many researchers that believe at some point it might be possible to put an implant in the hippocampus and actually be able to record memories as they come together. Of course, they then have to figure out, the you know, the neural signals or the codes that are the indicators of certain memories. Yeah. And and of course, no one's saying this will be an easy task. But I I was reading about some researchers that are working to try and figure out how to crack the code around certain memories and understand this has to happen among the millions and millions of neurons firing. But scientists like Theodore Berger at the University of Southern California are actually making real progress towards this. Yeah. And actually, Berger was one of them that teamed up with Deadweiler and Hampson on some of their rat studies. Hmm. So specifically in studies where they drugged rats to mimic amnesia so they wouldn't be able to remember the whole lever pushing thing. But then after using electrodes to stimulate the same neural pattern, the rats were able to remember what to do. Yeah, so uh, I don't know about roofied rats, but the potential applications <laughs> of this are truly staggering. But, but I, I guess one question I have is whether there's a neural code that applies to everyone or whether everyone's is different. Well, that's a very good point. It, they're still trying to figure out all the specifics of this, but... I have to be honest, I can't wait to get our guest on the line to get his thoughts on some even more mind-blowing possibilities of this brain-machine connection. Yeah, let's do it. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. 
a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. So our guest today is a neuroscientist and professor at Johns Hopkins. He's also the founder and director of the Brain Learning Animation and Movement Laboratory, or BLAM, as Mango and I love to say. And his work in helping treat stroke patients is just fascinating. And we're thrilled to have him on today. John Krakauer, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Uh, thank you. Um, I certainly am only a part-time genius. <laughs> So you're joining us from a cafe in Lisbon, Portugal. Is that right? Yeah. So I'm in Portugal. I spend a month or an, a, you know, or two, usually a month and a half um, every year here because um, I have a visiting position at a fantastic place. It's talking about names. It's called the Champlimo Center for the Unknown. So, John, knowing that stroke is the leading cause of disability in the U.S. and often causes complete arm and or leg paralysis in people, this is obviously very important work to many, many people. Yeah, but you've explained that one of the things we failed to understand for so long was just how critical it is to begin rehab as quickly as possible. So can you talk a little bit about this and the studies that led to this realization? Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's a long story, really. In other words, Stroke has been really interesting to neurologists for over a century, and they were very much interested in studying animals, particularly uh, primates, uh, non-human primates, to sort of guess some of the mechanisms of the deficit after stroke. And it's ironic that if you look at the very early studies in the early 20th century, there was evidence that the animals had the potential to get better early on after the lesions were induced, and especially if you encouraged them with training. So it was there in the early literature. Um, and then it, it, it's not clear that that ever sort of got through to the clinicians and the therapists. And a certain nihilism and a certain pessimism set in. Um, and the general impetus was to try to make people better early, but not with very high doses, or to help people cope with what they had left. So, John, your team developed a system of therapy that involved an exoskeleton, robotics, brain stimulation, and a game where you control a dolphin. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the game you developed and how things are going in your testing? Well, I should say, say right from the beginning that it's been a painful, slow, 
process, we are hoping to be able to look at the data by the end of the year. I cannot tell you any results. I don't know them yet. Um, now, in terms of um, why, it's actually a bit of a, a bit of a story. The major answer is how do you get people to make hundreds, if not thousands, of continuous movements day in, day out? In other words, the animal literature suggested you needed thousands of movements, uh, of, of titrated, difficult movements. You know, you're not going to get somebody to pick up a glass of water 500 times in a row. Uh, you're not going to get someone to use a knife and fork, of, you know, thousands of repetitions. So it's not a trivial thing. How do you get people in, into a context where they're going to be making the kinds of movements you want them to use in everyday life, but in a way trick them into making them into, under conditions that are so much fun they don't realize they're practicing them? I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever had rehabilitation for anything, you know, elbow surgery, shoulder surgery, um, I have. Mm -hmm. And it's so boring that I was a terrible patient. I didn't even do the, the 10 minutes twice a day that I was meant to do. It was so dull. Now imagine that in the conditions of stroke. So one thing we know is having an illness, being brain damaged, isn't in and of itself an incentive to go to the gym or the equivalent. So we had to find a way to make people do stuff that was fun. And we also wanted to do something that the movements they made were general. They were useful for everyday life. Because there's something in motor learning that's called the curse of task specificity. That if you practice task A, you only get good at task A, and it doesn't make you any better at task B, C, or D. And how do you guys come up with the dolphin concept? Well, okay, so there's a lot of data to show that if you put rats after brain injury into enriched environments, and as you put them in a little cage full of ramps and spinning wheels and balls and friends, they do much better even if you don't train them on the tasks you test them on. So that was the final sort of clue. It needed to be in an emotional, immersive, motivating environment. And then I met these remarkable two people, Pramit Roy and Omar Maj, who were both graduate students. Well, they'd both been undergrads and grads at Hopkins. And they were doing beautiful gaming um, where they were simulating animal movement. And I had gone to the Hopkins campus looking for young gamers and I found them, I was introduced to them. And they showed me what they had done. And I realized that I wanted to go a step further and not just have people watch beautiful movement on a game, but, be, but take the extra crucial step of controlling it, that you became the character in the game. So basically imagine gaming meets Pixar meets you controlling the characters fusing into the idea that if you had a dolphin, which is a beautiful animal that we love to watch move, that's why we love dolphins, we love their acrobatics, and they move continuously in the water. In other words, there's no stopping and starting. So you can be moving your arms around continuously without starting or stopping, because even if you stop moving your arm, the animal will continue to move through the water by its momentum. So we thought that we could make patients babble like children do, moving in this cloud of everyday life. Well, tell us what else you guys are focused on at BLAM right now. So you can actually take somebody who's lost their hand through an accident, a soldier, for example, so they can have just a stump where their hand was and be using prosthetics 
for years, and you can take the hands of some of these guys and basically reconnect it to someone else's body. So you can basically have someone else's hand. There are many, many ways that you could basically expand the the repertoire of human movement by actually having more than just your hands. In other words, it's the irony, right? On the one hand, you want to use it perhaps to train you just to have a hand like everybody else. But in healthy people, you could go beyond the hand. Yeah, that, that, that was one of the things that Will and I were both fascinated by in that article, the idea that we could almost like upgrade our boring old hands. We don't know what the upper limit on that is. What if, you, what if somebody was to be born with eight arms? Because in the limit, each of your muscle fibers might be a, be a limb. Do you see? In other words, many, 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 many muscles make up your arm. And we talk about just controlling your arm. But you're actually controlling lots and lots of individual muscles in your arm. So if you start thinking the way I'm sort of laying out now, imagine what the range of impact in the world you could have if you were to sort of combinatorially explode in that way. Yeah, it's it's so crazy to think where your brain might max out. Yeah. I mean, instead of you could have a, a New Yorker cartoon where the... Um, the conductor, instead of having all the musicians in the orchestra, is all the musicians in the orchestra. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. Well, John, we, we really appreciate the work you're doing. It's uh, both fascinating and obviously, you know, life-changing for a lot of people. So thank you for that work, and thank you for joining us today on Part-Time Genius. It was an absolute pleasure, and you guys are wonderful. Thanks for your perseverance. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. Now, Mango, before the break, we were talking about the possibilities of using devices in our brains to assist with memory. Yeah, and there are actually a few other things related to this field that I wanted to talk about before we move on. All right, well, go for it. Well, the first is something I was reading about a new scientist, and this is the possibility that we could one day implant a chip in people who'd suffered some sort of brain damage. And this chip would include code that would help these people accomplish some of the basic things lost after a stroke or some other form of damage. There's a quote from Justin Sanchez, who works in neuroprosthetics at the University of Miami in Florida, and it goes, before we can get someone with brain damage back to work, we want to return their capability to form those fundamental declarative memories. Yeah, it's fascinating to think of that being a possibility, and I can't even imagine how life-changing it would be for people struggling to tackle some of the basic life skills they may have once had. Sure, and and then you take it a step further, right? Sanchez also told New Scientist... Think of the guy coming back from war who can't remember his wife's face. And that's heartbreaking to think about. But the science behind it and how they're approaching the science, that's fascinating. And we can actually come back to more studies from Deadweiler and Hampson on this. So did did you read about their studies on macaques? Yeah, I I did. So for for the listeners, this is a study where they showed the macaques an image on a screen and, and then had them pick out that image once it was part of a much bigger collection of images. This happened a minute or so later. And and during this, the researchers were monitoring their brains and observing the signals involved in this process. And then they added drugs. And these were to prevent the macaques from turning this event into a long-term memory. It effectively made them forget it happened. But then the scientists had them perform the task again. And when they did, they hit the neurons with the same pattern of signals they'd observed earlier. And the macaques seemed to know exactly what to look for. You know, there, there are a couple of pieces of this that are just super interesting to me. So one is what Deadweiler and Hampson and other researchers believe about how memory works. And, and that is that the brain patterns they observe aren't necessarily attached to an exact image. It's really more that our brains tend to break things down into features. So, you know, like by shape or color or size. And then this collection of information, when that's pieced together, that's what helps us recall an object or a person specifically. That's crazy. Like, I never would have thought about that. Well, and the other thing that's so interesting is our brain's plasticity and its ability to learn to work with these devices. So so let's go back for a minute to the neural implants used to control a robotic arm. The interesting thing is the way that the neurons are working to control the robotic arm, that, that they're not identical to the way it would move a typical arm. But our brains adapt and they observe and they learn. And then because of this neurofeedback, they they master a task, even if it means doing that task in a slightly different way. Yeah. And the same thing happens with the stimulation used to assist with memory. Like our our brain's plasticity helps us work with these devices to learn. And now DARPA is getting more and more interested in this type of research. And I always forget what it stands for. So I wrote down that's the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And they have something they're calling the Restoring Active Memory Project. They're basically investing significant sums to try and develop technology that could be implanted to help a range of people dealing with brain injury. So that means like the soldiers returning home with injury to, to those battling Alzheimer's, to those who've suffered strokes. You know, and, and while the applications are truly incredible, I do think we have to at least note some of the ethical concerns and risk involved in all of this. I mean, think about what it means to be able to implant memories, especially memories that might not be our own. 
I mean, some would argue that our collection of memories is really at the core of who we are. And if our memories at some point are, are more of a computer algorithm than, you know, than something our own brains are producing, are we still us? I mean, this is kind of deep to me, Mango. I don't know how you feel about it. <laughs> well, I had to drop out of a philosophy course. So okay, that was too yeah, deep for me. Too deep. <laughs> Another concern is just the possibility of certain flaws or downsides to the way the chips work. So let's say they don't just bring up things we want to remember, but things we really don't and have moved on from. I, I'm not saying it's not worth doing this for the people we've talked about. I mean, I, I think we absolutely should, but there are definitely going to be some hurdles ahead. Well, there's there's one other weird thought about this. So, so let's say we're using these devices and because of regained access to memories, we might behave a little bit differently for better or worse. Let's say in this case, it's for worse. And then there are consequences for that behavior. Could you then have somebody that would argue that the memories that led to that said behavior were, you know, not really their own and therefore shouldn't be the ones facing the consequences? Yeah, I mean, the legal stuff is going to be this other patch of problems, but I'm going to choose to be optimistic here, and especially in the way it'll help those dealing with brain injury and disease. And I I just think it's going to be fascinating to watch. Well, you don't have to wait decades to be fascinated, because guess what time it is? (laughs) Time for the PTG Fact Off. So I'm going to kick us off here. It turns out researchers are better at understanding why, after a night of drinking, despite all those recent self-promises you've made to eat better and lose a few pounds, your hungry brain goes into overdrive and you find yourself running for the border to down a handful of Doritos tacos. Mm. In a study of mice, of course, they boozed them up and martyred their brain activity. And when the mice were completely pickled, they noticed a spike in activity in a group of neurons called AGRP. And these are the ones that are activated when our bodies are actually facing starvation. And as a result, the mice ate more. But when the scientists got them drunk again and blocked the AGRP neurons with medication, the mice didn't eat as much. And the thinking is these same neurons are the ones responsible for our post-drunken feasts. You know, I feel like we've talked about drunk mice a couple of times in this episode. (laughs) All right, where do I want to start? Let's see. Um, Well, as we've learned more about how the brain works, I find those little tricks or shortcuts that our brains use for making memories so interesting. And there's some other ways our brains take shortcuts that, that I also find pretty interesting to look at. And one of these deals with peripheral vision. So according to a study in the journal Psychological Science, Researchers found that our brains often make up things in our peripheral vision that that aren't actually there. And this is because our brains focus on our central vision and tend to just make educated guesses about our peripheral vision. Oh, I love that. So uh, despite what your mother may have told you, it's a myth that we're born with all our brain cells we'll ever have. This study out of Sweden in the late 90s helped scientists prove that the hippocampus forms new neurons pretty much our entire lives. And in this other study, also out of Sweden... Wow, Sweden's really doing it. (laughs) Yeah, they're killing it. Uh, A team of researchers showed that new brain cells are formed in the striatum. It's a part of the brain involved in motor control and decision-making, among other things. All right, well, here's another one. I think we've all heard that exercise is good for the brain. In fact, studies have shown that taking half-hour walks a few times a week helps our abstract reasoning skills and even helps with the growth of new cells in the hippocampus, kind of like you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that the effect can happen in the reverse direction as well. That is, mental exercise can be good for your physique, too. Hmm. Uh, One study done at the Cleveland Clinic showed that those who spent 15 minutes a day thinking about exercising their biceps actually increased the strength of their biceps by 13% 
over a three-month period. I'm going to start thinking so hard about my biceps. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so do you know a, a bigger brain doesn't necessarily mean a smarter brain? Uh, the average human brain is three pounds, and Einstein's was only 2.7 pounds. And I think that's pretty solid proof. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, your brain generates 20 watts of power, which is actually enough to run a regular-sized LED bulb. <laughs> You know how we talk about people being auditory or visual learners? Yeah. Well, while it may be true that we all have our preferences in how we learn, like you might prefer to read something instead of hearing it in lecture form, there really aren't studies to back up this idea. I mean, when tested, students tended to perform similarly, regardless of whether they were taught in their preferred method or some other method. That is surprising. Yeah, I, I always just assumed that we were either one or the other. So I, I think I'm going to give you this week's fact off trophy. Congratulations. <laughs> And if there are any brain facts you feel we should know, hit us up at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. Or as always, call our fact hotline, 1-844-PT-GENIUS. It, it's still a 24-7 fact hotline, right? I think it's still 24-7. All right, so call us there. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.